The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Hello again, law fans. I'm Kevin Poulter, and in this episode of The Hearing, I'm joined by family and public law barrister, Charlotte Proudman. Many of you will recall that before Brexit and Me Too, there was another debate that polarised the country, when Charlotte, then a newly qualified barrister, called out a senior partner for making what she felt were inappropriate comments on her LinkedIn profile photo. We discussed this incident and the impact it has had on her career, for better and for worse, both personal and professional. We move on to the nature of social media, and if, as thick-skinned lawyers, we should be fair game for the tabloid press. And from the legal profession to the oldest profession, we consider the empowerment of women in the Me Too era and what changes needed at the highest level and across society. Feminist or man-hating feminazi, listen in and make your own judgment. The Hearing so Charlotte, thank you for inviting us down to Chambers. Uh, we're here in lovely Leafy Temple, uh, mm. uh, looking out of the church, which is uh, fantastic. And uh, well, I want to talk a little bit about how you ended up here. Because uh, did you always plan on being a barrister? Was that the from primary school? How did you uh, come to the law? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, I wanted to become a solicitor. I always thought uh, that would be my calling. Um, but you fell short. I did indeed, yes. <laughs> um, I went off to do some work experience with criminal law solicitors and I remember one particular day when we went to the Crown Court and it was the first time that I'd met a barrister, first time I'd ever seen inside a courtroom and I thought, you know, that's exactly what I want to be doing. Um, the advocacy, the razor-sharp cross-examination, the very the, the kind of in-depth client contact that you mm. have before the hearing, um, it just seemed very dynamic. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do as a profession. And whereabouts was that? Because you're not a Londoner. Yeah, no, that was actually in Stoke-on-Trent. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and and uh, presumably London was then the obvious place to come, was it? How's the, how's the bar up in the Midlands? So I did my undergrad at Keele University, um, hence why my work experience was in Stoke-on-Trent yeah. and I come from the Staffordshire area. Uh, okay. And then I applied to bar school and I decided to, um, to attend city law school mm. in London. I thought it would be a really good opportunity to kind of get immersed into the, into the bar and the environment to make the most out yeah. of that year. Because obviously the intention is to gain pupillage and we know how competitive that is. Yeah, well, how competitive was it? Uh, have you sailed through or has it been a hard slog to get, to get, to get here? Um, I mean, of course it is a hard slog mm. um, of any stretch of the imagination for anyone, mm. no matter how excellent or outstanding you are. I was fortunate enough to gain pupillage on my first um, application attempt. Um, so I applied during bar school. I had one year between bar school and starting pupillage. Okay. So I did a master's oh, in right. Cambridge. Okay. And um, what was the master's in? Um, so that was an MPhil in criminology and I was researching forced marriage at the time, oh, wow. whether it should be criminalised. Gosh, uh, that sounds pretty hardcore um, to, to, as, as a starter uh, and, and uh, you're practicing now in public law and family law yes uh, was that again was that something you, you started off doing crime uh, or suddenly on the work experience did that put you off or did that no actually I thought I wanted to become a criminal barrister I thought you know the kind of whole idea of almost acting it's a mm. performance and 
you know, having the opportunity to do that in front of strangers, a jury, and convince them that your client is not guilty or if you're for the CPS that potentially they are guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that's what I always wanted to do. And I applied for a mixture of pupillages in criminal okay. and family law. And I got a family law pupillage. And so inevitably I found myself as a family law practitioner and I've never looked back. And was that here? No, I did my pupillage at Quorum Chambers, okay. um, which is just up the road in yeah. Gray's Inn. And, uh, and, and what brought you to uh, Goldsmith? Um, well, I've had, I suppose, a, a rather diverse start to my uh, practice. I've moved to actually several different chambers, okay. which is becoming more common, I think, yeah. at the bar. Um, but on the whole, conventional style usually dictates that you are ultimately a tenant at mm. one or two chambers throughout the duration of your practice. For me, I did my pupillage at quorum chambers. Um, I then moved to One Mitre Court Buildings, um, which is known as sort of a more human rights focused set. So I was able to be a little bit more diverse in my practice. Mm. I moved there as a tenant. And then I was invited to join Mansfield Chambers um, by Mike Mansfield, of course, the celebrity um, at the bar. And I did that. Unfortunately, things didn't work out quite as one uh, expected or indeed hoped. Mm. And so I moved to Goldsmith Chambers when there was a transition yeah. period from Mansfield to Goldsmith. So that's okay. how I found myself here. And, and, and the works presumably followed you. Um, yeah. Or, or do, have, you, uh, have you followed the work? Is, is that, I don't know how it works uh, for you. Do you have uh, the type of work you do? Do you have a hardcore like client base of solicitors? Do you work in direct access at the moment? Uh, How does the work find you? Um, So I suppose I'm I'm really fairly lucky in the sense that I do have a following of solicitors. Um, I do do some direct access, but mainly solicitor-focused work. And I've had some, you know, many solicitors that have instructed me right from the beginning of my practice and Mm. have continued to do so. Um, so I'm very fortunate in that sense. I'm very busy, diverse practice in, as you say, public law, human rights focused, mm. and also family law. Mm. And uh, as a, a, a junior barrister, um, we're going to have to talk about uh, what happened a couple of years ago now. Yes. Um, and uh, and you've you talked about Mike Mansfield being the celebrity lawyer. You've almost stepped into those shoes as well. Yeah. And 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 uh, whether through choice or not necessarily through choice, which we'll, we'll pick up on. But um, talk us through. I'm sure everybody is familiar but uh, there was a an incident um that's probably a, a grand term for it uh on linkedin where yes. you had a, a perhaps quite a, an infamous uh a, a comment made a message sent uh, by a, a law firm a senior sister within a law firm mm-hmm. for those people that may have been hiding under a rock tell us a little bit about what happened and uh, yeah well, from your I, point of view i mean this happened before the me too campaign yeah Um, And so around this time, I suppose it was somewhat of a shock for a young woman to be speaking out against what I considered to be, um, I suppose, some form of sexual harassment Mm. or certainly unwanted attention towards my appearance on a professional networking site. And this message came as unsolicited from a senior solicitor Mm. um, to me at the time, a junior barrister. Very junior, in fact. I was only in my mid-twenties. And... Um, I challenged that and I did so publicly on Twitter. I asked how many other women had experienced mm. um, such unwanted attention. And it really went from there. And I never in a million years expected to be on the front page of the Daily Mail, yeah, even on is, uh, you know, the news, etc., all over the world. And it was it became huge. It did. It did in a very short period of time. Yeah. And, and yeah. seemed to, uh, I, I remember 
social media is one of my interests and I remember following it quite closely as seemingly everybody else was as well but it split the country in it some did. ways yes. um, and maybe those people that you would have expected to be sympathetic turned out not to be so sympathetic um, I'm thinking particularly of the Daily Mail as you've mentioned yes. uh, who, who labelled you a feminazi uh, mm. uh, as, as others did as well uh, how on earth do you deal with that, both personally yeah. and professionally? I mean, you're right. I mean, it was interesting in terms of how it was split and it was very divisive. You had the Daily Mail, who were obviously very anti and branded me a feminazi, and you had mm. the Sun newspaper that were very pro and supported what I did, which, you know, it's a conundrum in itself. Mm. Um, <laughs> and how did I deal with it? I think personally at the time, I distanced myself from what was happening, and so it was almost as if I was looking in on the experience rather than being part of that, rather than being present. I think mm. that's the only way you can kind of cope with mm. that level of... An out-of-body experience. Exactly, <laughs> that kind of vitriol. And then I think in the last few years since that's happened, I'd say I've grown up and matured massively. I think once you experience something mm. like that, mm. um, you feel as though you can take anything that's thrown at you, literally. Yeah, and, and uh, but on the back of that, uh, do you think it would happen again, not necessarily to you. I hope yeah. it wouldn't now. Um, but but uh, to other people, are you still hearing stories that, that people are being maybe targeted in any sort of way or, or having being harassed through online profiles? Do I think people are still yeah. experiencing that? Um, I think the Me Too campaign has helped. Um, I think, you know, the fact that we've had this kind of general consensus and cultural movement, mm. women at the forefront of that, challenging male dominance and male privilege and the way in which unaccountable power is levelled and used against women in more subordinate positions mm. um, for sexual gratification, other types of benefits. So I think that's had a huge impact. Mm. Um, but I still think that women are often reluctant to come forward and to complain mm. because they often find themselves in more vulnerable positions and are concerned about the impact that can have upon their career, mm. as indeed I was when well, this happened to me. And do you think it has had an impact? I think for better or for worse? For better. I think it's had a very positive impact on my career and I, I get many instructions as a result of what happened in the media and some people like to think that they have a celebrity mm. lawyer representing them um, or on the other hand will want me to represent them because they think you know I'm a strong feminist or an yeah. advocate for women or on the other hand just think that you're willing to stand up for what you consider to be right and are a forceful advocate. But both at the time and, and maybe now two different aspects of it, but somebody who is in your position as a junior barrister, um, making their way, sort of making a name for themselves slowly uh, all too often, uh, is it something you would ever recommend to not necessarily have the same thing, but to make a statement, uh, what became a very public viral statement? Uh, obviously, some of that is out of your control. Um, but would you recommend it, given it's been a benefit to you? I wouldn't recommend it because I don't think that many people have uh, a thick skin that's required um, to be able to withstand mm. that level of pressure. I think a lot of people will cave under it. Mm. So no, I don't. And I, it obviously, it can have a profound impact upon you personally. And, you know, it, it, it does impact upon your character and the way that it develops. I, mean, I was so young as well, mm. my mid-20s. Um, so I would I would say no. <laughs> mm. And does, do you have you have you met this guy or spoken to him since? No, I haven't had the pleasure. You've never had the public apology that uh, no, I know you were looking for at the no, time. No, sadly not. And do you? Because th I've I've gone back and revisited it, and 
you, I know they came out with a, a statement at the time to say that it was only comment on the professionalism of your photograph that was being complimented and, 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 and right. various things like that. Uh, but you, I remember you saying that uh, LinkedIn isn't there to be used like a dating app, like Tinder. But my experience of LinkedIn recently is that it's becoming more and more like Facebook. Uh, I'm seeing photographs of babies, breakfasts, uh, wow. school, sports days, everything. Um, do you think social media is evolving and, and blurring that boundary between the professional, which is what you were saying LinkedIn should be used for, mm. and the more personal, the more day-to-day, -day, daily life? Mm. Um, do you think that is happening? And do you think it's a good thing? Or are you still using social media as a consequence? Um, I definitely think there is a blurred boundaries between obviously social and uh, professional. Mm. I don't think there should be blurred boundaries as well. I think particularly within a profession such as the bar or even if you're a solicitor or a judge, I do think that you need very clear boundaries between who you are and the night out and who you mm. are when you're in court. Um, and I think that it's important at all times, given that we are, I suppose, instructed as a result of our reputation that we maintain that. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable that you often get the blurred boundaries and, it's, and often that can be with the proliferation of sites such as, um, well, what's the name of it? The one that everybody, um, the one that everybody goes to now, but I can't remember the name of it because I don't read it. Oh, uh, it's the tabloid type for lawyers, legal cheek. Legal cheek. Thank that's you. The one. Never read it, but apparently everybody does, and it's I've, I've featured on it many times. I'm told. Um, but you've never read it. <laughs> no, oh, surely, no. surely. Only you've the occasional article about up. myself, but no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't read it. But those types of websites mm. are what you know. They're trying to undercover the inner, the true individual, mm. you know, and, and, and sort of, I suppose, sex it up in a way, sort of like the Daily Mail. And I don't think that that's very helpful in this type of profession. But, but similarly, uh, arguably, Roll on Friday, which was which was big at the time, um, the, the, they were the ones that went, I think, and challenged, uh, 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 what was it, it's... Um, I would say Carter Rook. Was it Car not Carter Rook? Carter Silk. Carter Silk. Thank you. That's the one. Brown Rudnick. That's what I'm thinking of. The firm. Yeah. And uh, they challenged him and got a statement from them. Do they not serve a purpose as well in exposing these sorts of issues? Um, as we're seeing more and more, certainly in the law, since the Me Too, since what happened with you, uh, there's simply more and more people coming forward within law firms to expose mm. this. And if the press, if the firms themselves aren't doing anything about it, maybe there is a place for these journalists mm. no i think it's important to as i say challenge unaccountable power and i think show the fact that um there may be i suppose issues within the way in which they're operating within professional parameters mm. and you know obviously if there is harassment going on then yes i can see that there's a place in exposing that but i think on the flip side i don't think you need to know what's going on in somebody's marriage or whether there's an argument with the next door neighbor mm. and a barrister shouting at children across opposite in a playground mm. and recording that and uploading it onto legal cheek i don't think that's necessary i don't think it's helpful mm. i don't think it's in the public interest we do see a lot of it even in the evening yeah. standard the people getting the basements dug out and it's always a barrister in highgate yes but is the profession still a newsworthy profession because do people still have this assumption? Are you, oh, you're in the wrong place to answer this. We need to speak to somebody else. But do you think there's still that assumption that uh, barristers, solicitors, people in the legal profession are just fair game? Yeah, I think that there's a... 
I think that's um, the likes of the Daily Mail and other tabloids think that everybody is fair mm. game, no matter who you are. And we'll dig a lot deeper with people in, I suppose, more position of power. Yeah. You know, they think there's more to hide, there's more to gain. People will be more interested. It's more interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, talking about the, the profession and how it's evolving and how it's changing, we've, we've, we've talked on about the Me Too. Um, but it's more than just about the Me Too campaign. It's more about, more than the, just the wave of support that's had. Uh, there's also laws coming through, um, changing uh, legislation, changing government. Mm. Uh, we've now got three women in the Supreme Court. Mm. Fantastic. Um, we've got a woman in charge. We've got a woman in charge of the government. Yes. Uh, we've still got a queen. Um, certainly at the time of recording, we should say. Uh, uh, is that dangerous? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Tempting fate. We've cut that out. <laughs> uh, but we've also got shared parental leave. We've got um, uh, women-only shortlists. What more can be done? What more should be done uh, to get these things taken up? Do you think they're a good thing from your point of view? Obviously... Have you had any experience of the positivity that can come from that? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm a barrister is because I think the law has a fundamental role in changing people's lives to the better, but particularly ensuring gender equality. And the law can have a big societal, create a big societal shift in attitudes, mm. beliefs and behaviours. So that's why, you know, I'm a fundamental advocate of changing law. Um, but I don't think that having a few token women in positions of power is enough to create a big shift within society. I think we need to be more drastic with that. Of course, gender parity, where, mm. there, are, where there is power is necessary, so partners with the Magic Circle law firms. Yep. We need gender parity amongst the judiciary, um, across all levels, not just in the Supreme Court, but also even you know county courts and so forth. Um, but I think it goes a lot deeper mm. than that. And we need to look at gender inequality across all class backgrounds, across all racial divides, disabilities, and look at intersectional analysis. Yeah. And for me, a large part of that starts with understandings of sexuality and gender and how they interlink. And women on the whole tend to be oppressed through their body. Mm. And so in my view, I've been a ad big advocate of issues such as prostitution, yeah. abortion, pornography, and other types of um, issues that are affecting women more so than they affect men. And it's often as a result of that power imbalance that we see men oppressing women in those arenas. So for example, prostitution, I'm a big advocate for the End Man campaign, the mm. Nordic model, which would put us on par with other countries such as Sweden, Iceland, Norway, France, Ireland and so forth. So explain a little bit more about that, what that means. Yeah, so this was um, an initiative that was advocated by Professor Catherine McKinnon, who's an American scholar and advocate. She's extremely famous uh, across the sea. And she argued that what we need to do is introduce a threefold approach whereby the Johns, so the men, who um, ensure the demand for prostitution mm. are the ones that are prosecuted, mm. um, whereas the women that ultimately provide the supply are seen as um, needing support and assistance to be able to exit prostitution, and mm. so they are not prosecuted. And the third approach is that the state has to provide support to allow women to exit prostitution. Um, and so this is a type of model which is, I suppose, fundamentally underpinned by the fact that uh, prostitution is a form of violence against women and girls. And so we need to prosecute those that are sexually exploiting women's bodies and provide support for women so they can leave that industry. 
So that's using the law to bring about societal change. Yes. And I think Sweden's, uh, I've done a bit of research into this actually, yeah. believe it or not. Uh, I think Sweden's, it's been in law since 1997. Yes, that's right. What's yeah. the impact of that been? Um, so there's been an awful lot of research done. And of course, it's a very contentious issue. Yeah. Um, what they show is that it's reduced um, street level prostitution. It hasn't increased, um, for instance, the numbers of women that are supposedly advertised online. It's become a more hostile place for sex traffickers mm. um, which is obviously a, a key part of having mm. the Enderman campaign because where you have the legalisation of prostitution such as in Amsterdam um, and other countries you see a massive influx in sex trafficking because it's yeah. seen as a the perfect climate um, to bring over women from other countries mm. where they're obviously more vulnerable mm. and susceptible to exploitation. So the Swedish model has been seen as, you know, a, a herald of the way in which this can be done. And also there's been a dramatic shift in societal attitudes. So when the law was introduced, the majority of people were anti the introduction of the law. And now, having been surveyed thereafter, they're actually advocates of it. Yeah, That's, yeah. It's, it's incredible. And, and we, we, we see this in so many different areas again. But prostitution is, obviously it's important, but I would hope it's certainly less, well, it is less visible than, than I think it's ever been before. We've seen, I think it was in Hull where they tried to uh, have a, 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 an area. It's Leeds. Was it Leeds, sorry? Yeah. Where, uh, where where it was acceptable, it was accepted. That, yeah, that there were more happening. women more killed control. in that area than any other. Is that, yeah, not as a result in that oh. zone. And well, we say as a result of the fact that really? it was legalised within that area. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So. Yeah, because the risks off the risks are so high of having prostitution. Mm. I mean, you or I, when we go out to work, we're, we're not at risk ordinarily of being raped or sexually assaulted. Whereas obviously prostitutes. Mm that go into work and that even when it's legalised, yeah. there is that inevitable risk, not only mm. of that, but of STIs and HIV mm. and so forth. Mm. And, and, and I know you've, you've talked um, in the past about the rape laws. Yes, and obviously right, the yeah. huge debate at the moment about consent, um, but also about uh, uh, Liam Allen comes to mind, mm. um, who's 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 in himself in some ways uh, through circumstances not of his own doing has become a bit of a spokesperson for uh, if you like, the innocent party, the mm. innocent uh, um, uh, victim where allegations are maybe mm. made, and and this is a it's a really difficult subject. Um, it is. It is a very difficult subject. It, in fact, I wrote an article about this in The Guardian because I felt very passionate right. about the issue at the time and um, following the Liam Allen case and the more broader fallout mm. about the rape law controversy and the necessity. Obviously, disclosure is incredibly important. And if disclosure is not done properly, it can lead to travesties of uh, mm. justice. It goes without saying, of course, it's absolutely necessary. And the problem with it, though, is the narrative that follows on from that. You see, disclosure is not just a problem in rape cases. It's mm. a problem across the criminal divide, mm. uh, across all cases. But of course, only the rape cases are picked up on by the tabloid press. Yeah. And so the narrative that comes out as a result of that is, hey, look at all these women who are lying. Look at all these cases that are being dropped because of disclosure issues. And in fact, actually, that's not what is going on. You know, women in rape cases, you know, of course, some may lie, but there's absolutely mm. very, you know, minority yeah. um, of cases actually where that does happen. And it's, it's true of every criminal action uh, that, that there is a right to uh, innocence until proven guilty. But does that uh, extend to the right of anonymity for those who have allegations made against them? 
Um, well, I mean, I don't agree with um, anonymity. Um, one of the, obviously, the, the core reasons for that is that as a result of often naming um, those that are suspected of rape or other sexual mm. um, type assault cases, it can lead to other people coming forward mm. and sharing their own stories. Um, and also it can result in further convictions and prosecutions further down the line. And also we don't make the same arguments for terrorism or murder or paedophilia. Yeah. Yeah. So why is it that rape or sexual assault against women is seen as a different class of crime to other mm. criminal acts? And it's because, again, it's, it's between men and it's between women and um, we have that yeah, that very you know um i suppose that gender dynamic mm. which of course the press like to feed off and results in women being branded as liars and men being branded as victims like recognizing the fact that rape and sexual assault is pervasive in society you know the the numbers of women that actually report rape are incredibly low in mm. comparison to the number of women that actually are raped mm. we need to do more to encourage women to come forward and the conviction rates are equally low yeah um, prosecution rates are equally low as well i mean not enough has been done so how how can that change be brought about what do we think as a both as a profession uh, we can do about mm. it as a as a society what, what needs to change to address those issues those concerns is it the press that should be leading the way on this who seems to be doing from what you're saying not a particularly good job at the no, moment no no i don't think they are doing a very good job um i think societal attitudes are appalling in a way and i, I wonder if part of the um, the fallout from the Liam Allen case was as a, as a, a reaction to the mm. Me Too campaign mm. and it was seen as if almost too much progress was being pushed forward so we needed to push back on that and they were doing that through the collapsed rape trials as a result of disclosure. Um, what, do, what else do I think needs to be done? I think we need a whole reformulation of the rape law and to completely relook at that. Mm. I think that the idea of consent um, is redundant in a society in which is ingrained with gender inequality. I think that where you have a clear gender inequality, it's impossible, I would say, for consent in terms of it being free and full to actually be meaningful. Mm. And I think actually what you need to do is relook at what does that actually mean where women want to have sex, where women are saying yes and women are saying that this is welcome and you can have something called a welcome Welcome the standard, for example, which is being talked about within academic literature, um, whereby you look at how meaningful that consent is. So you look at whether there is inequality in the power between the man and the woman. You look at the context mm. in which sex takes place. And you look at all the broader circumstances rather than just having to say yes or acquiesce. Mm. And uh, to bring it slightly closer to home uh, again, and yeah. and to the legal profession, there's a for, for the first time uh, there are more women solicitors in the profession uh, than there are men. Yeah. Um, and and we see we have national uh, international women's day we have these celebrations of women from time to time 100 women uh, 100 years since the first women's solicitor um, and yet there's a backlash to that as well and it's usually when is it man's day uh, when do men get attired and and uh, there's one area here which is the women only networking events i still don't understand women only networking events and when we have uh, for example lgbt events now we have lgbt allies or the straight allies as they I hate the phrase, but that's how it's known. Um, surely there's a place for female allies uh, to, to, to have to have supportive men in the room at the same time. Where do you stand on women-only events? Um, well, I mean that. <laughs> Sorry, I was putting on the spot. <laughs> 
in terms of being a, a woman ally, I'd say you can be a feminist ally. Yeah. Absolutely, that goes without saying. Um, what do I think to women-only events? I think they can be very useful. I think it can mm. be very empowering for women as a whole. Um, to be in a room full of only women, it's often the only time that will ever happen in a professional environment, and that's when it's a women-only event. Often what you have is a room whereby women are usually the minority mm. and in those types of powerful settings, so to speak. And so... I think that it can have valuable um, input and consequences. And what you can find also is that where you have um, so-called you know, feminist or women networking events, mm. you can have men that go along without even them supporting the objectives or the aims of that. Not to say that, of course, that's the case for you. What <laughs> to go along because, hey, it's an opportunity to network or it's an opportunity mm. to pick up women or whatever it might be. You know, you hear, you hear these wow. jokes and these, ba- you know, the banter, particularly at university. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not still not convinced, <laughs> but but uh, because in some examples I've heard, not one that I've been involved in, where the men who have gone to those sorts of events, not because they're women only, but they are women yeah. focused, have been made to stand up and almost take a round of applause. Now, if that was at a if that was a men's event and women were asked to do the same thing, then that would be uh, maybe not so front page yeah. news, but maybe on legal. Why, why were they asked to to provide just to just to, be, to say, well, Thanks you're so for brave for coming, and I. It's, Oh, that's very strange. I know how you feel now. Um, yeah, but, no. but it's this this is a this is a, a, a burden which may develop. Um, and I know that the senior positions in, in the profession, both lawyers, uh, solicitors and uh, the bar, the senior positions are still dominated by men. Yeah. But if this tide keeps changing, will we ever see a time where we have Sort of men in the minority, um, men supported ev- events. Um, do you think that's something that will ever happen in our lifetimes, at least? With increasing cuts to legal aid, possibly. So where you have um, a reduction in financial resources available within certain sectors of the legal profession, so for instance in immigration or family or even crime now, you'll see more women. Mm. And that's why you're seeing more women solicitors than ever. Um, where there is more money, so intellectual property mm. or other types of commercial law, you'll still see um, a male dominant profession in my view. Mm. So it's very similar to what happened, say, pre-World War II, where being a secretary was considered to be um, an exclusive job, one where you know you would earn a handsome salary and it was male dominated. Mm. And then as a consequence of that, as a consequence of the war, you saw more women taking on secretarial work. It was seen as a downgraded profession, wages were lower and women became dominant in that area and I think you're starting to see something very similar Mm. within the legal profession and also within medicine and other types of professions as well where they become downgraded Mm. where there's lower salaries um, and it's easier to get those qualifications as well you can do Mm. a law degree within two years Mm. you'll start to see I think a a very different gender balance with more women Mm. um, than men and do you think at the bar similar um, reactions are happening uh, do you see more women come into the profession? I mean, you have supposedly gender parity and the numbers of men and women coming to the bar, mm. but what you have is difficulty with retention rates of women. Yeah. Um, and that's because of lots of various different factors. Um, I think those factors still remain prevalent. So, for instance, um, obviously low wages at the junior bar, women really pushed into more legal aid work. Mm. Um, Childcare responsibilities largely still fall upon women. And in the self-employed mm. bar, it's almost impossible to finance childcare as well as continue with this job. So I think at the bar, we're always going to struggle while it's self-employed. 
But we, with more agile working, the ability to work from home and from wherever, mm-hmm. uh, do you think that being self-employed actually could be a, a benefit uh, to, to that type of work? I can see some benefits and largely because, I mean, I wanted to become a self-employed barrister because of that freedom, mm. gives you a lot of autonomy. You can mm. choose when you want to work, choose when you don't want to work. And yeah. that's, that's fantastic. Um, but on the other hand, you still have to be in court. So you still have to go to court if you want to earn money on the whole, unless you are a largely paperwork type barrister. Mm. Um, and if you have childcare responsibilities, it's very difficult to balance your time in court. There's a lot of waiting around as well. You can be there all day just waiting yeah. at the same time, having to pay a nanny or a childminder to be able to do that. And how's, how's your support network in chambers? Do you have a, a role model, a mentor that you can speak to? Is there a good uh, network for you to, to be supported by? Yeah, I mean, chambers, we're very fortunate. Uh, we're, we're quite a collegiate bunch. Mm. Um, we have uh, various WhatsApp groups okay. you know, that we're all members of and socials and various activities. And the younger women, junior barristers, um, mm. very much sit together and provide each other's support when we need it. So that's, I find, really helpful. Yeah, and, and in terms of uh, role models generally, obviously we've talked about the Supreme Court. Do you have anyone more personal that you, that you, you aspire to, perhaps? Um, I've mentioned Catherine McKinnon already. Yeah. Can I go back to you her? Can Am I do allowed? It. Yeah, why not? Um, definitely Catherine McKinnon. I mean, she has, she is a genius. I mean, I remember spending time with her when I was at Harvard. I went to Yale oh, wow. to meet her, and I had the pleasure of spending quite a lot of time with her. Mm. And you know, generally talking about anything that I wanted to related to gender theory. And not only is she incredibly passionate and committed, and for her it's a vocation, she's committed her life Mm. to wanting to achieve gender equality and written lots of books and, you know, speaks at fantastic events and conferences and proposes changes to laws, many of which have been implemented. Um, Mm. But she really is an absolute inspiration. Had she have been born a white man yeah. and been as committed as she is, I suspect she would be branded Karl Marx. Um, <laughs> but instead, you know, she hasn't perhaps had the same amount of fame, so to speak, as other um, contemporary colleagues of hers have. But has she experienced a lot of hostility as well? Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem. There's an enormous backlash within any feminist mm. movement. And once you call yourself a feminist, often, unfortunately, you're met with that level of vitriol that I experience, hopefully not to the mm. same degree, but nevertheless, particularly on social media nowadays. Yeah. Um, and it can have a professional and personal impact on you. Yeah, and it's, well, it's, such, a, it's, it's, it's such a broad term, it's taken in many different ways. Yes, um, it is. And there's been a big debate uh, recently uh, with the uh, Gender Recognition Act um, True, being yes. debated again and uh, uh, with trans uh, women yes. um, being sidelined, sort of, yes. uh, treated quite with, with some hostility. Yes. Um, is that something which is part of the feminist movement or is this a, 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 a small number of people who are, who are leading that charge, yeah, but quite vocally? I mean, it's not part of my feminist movement or my feminist agenda at all. I think trans women are excluded, mm. they're marginalised, are very vulnerable, mm. and I think we need to recognise the different levels of inequality that they experience, mm. which are often individualistic to them. Yeah. And um, I think we need to be supportive of that. And we don't criticise women for wanting to conform to so-called you know uh, societal descriptions of femininity so mm. why are we criticizing transfer women who may want to also to conform to i suppose very male um described however you want to be feminine caitlin jenner for example is mm. seen as that um and so for me i 
I'm not on the bandwagon with criticising trans women at all. Good. And back to you personally, um, we've spoken to a few people on this podcast where they've gone on to political careers having had mm. uh, a start at the bar. Is this something that you are uh, thinking about, would be tempted by... Never say never. Okay, well, I think that's a great way to end. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. Okay, thank you very much. The Hearing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please like us, or just follow and subscribe. We also want your feedback, so rate and review us, or get in touch using the hashtag The Hearing Podcast. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.